0: Good morning, Arbor Church. Good morning. Welcome. As we close out July, I'm not very happy that we're near the end of July because for me as a principal, that means school's just around the corner. For some of you parents, you're probably very excited about that. It's always a mixed bag with kids going back to school, but here we are in July. I'm thrilled to be up here speaking again as we can continue our series in Psalms. Um, we're going to look at Psalm 1 today. And it centers around the power of God's word. And every summer as a principal, I try to read a book that will help me improve my role and responsibilities as a principal. I'm reading a book this summer called Driven by Data. It's the idea of how to use data to inform the goals and the work in your building that you're doing. And there's self-help books out there that all of us have read. Maybe many of you have read a self-help book this year or in the past. I think of going from good to great. Um, how to empower your family. There's all these great self-help books out there that we've all read to make us be better at something. I probably could have used one this weekend. You know, I'll I'll be honest with you, confession's good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. Here I am preparing a sermon yesterday and was not my best self in an interaction with my daughter and that kind of threw me for a loop, but it's one of those moments where we, if we can actually live out what our self-help books tell us to do, we're much better people for that, but it's difficult to do at times. But today, we're going to look at the greatest self-help book that was ever written, and that's the Word of God. And these past few weeks, we've been looking at all the Psalms, and we, we've been working through that Psalms are God's words given to us to pray, say, and sing back to Him. They're God's words given to us to pray, say, and sing back to Him. They're great for us to look at and find words that maybe we can't find for ourselves. To understand that this relationship with God is not this perfect, pretty thing. It's messy, it's difficult, but he's always there for us. Why are we looking at the Psalms? Why are we studying them? It's helping connect our hearts to God. Helping connect our hearts to God. Because oftentimes in this crazy world, this big ball of mud that we live on, on, things get crazy and we end up eating a lot of mud pies sometimes. And it doesn't taste very good and we want to do a better job and our hearts can't get distant from God. But this, studying the Psalms, shows us how to keep our hearts connected to God. I'm going to be looking at Psalm 1 today. And we're going to dig into that and we're going to be reading it through. I'm going to be looking at the verses a lot today. So if you have a Bible or you've got a digital device to open up to Psalm 1 on, you may want to do that because we're going to be going back to the verses very closely looking at them very closely and breaking them down a lot. So I want you to be able to follow along with that because it doesn't always stay up on the screen for the full time. But let's pray first. God, I thank you for the opportunity again to be here, Lord, um, sharing your truths of your scripture with all of us and with me as well. God, as always, I pray that you'd move me out of the way in my chaotic mind and the way that it runs, that you would take a message that needs to be heard by all of us today. I pray that you would give us ears that wanna hear, hearts that wanna listen, and then feet that want to put into action what we hear today, God. We thank you for your enduring, loving word. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 1. Let's read it first, then we'll talk a little bit about it. Six verses in Psalm 1. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I read that out of the New American Standard Version, if you're wondering what version that was today. So as we look at this, the book of Psalm 1 stands, along with Psalm 2, as an introduction to all the other psalms that are character, that are broken up into five different types of psalms. It's a few short verses that declare some of the most basic, yet profound truths and principles in the Bible. Psalm 1 itself is very short, but it emphasizes two themes that consistently show up throughout the rest of the Psalms. Blessings of the righteous, misery of the wicked. And that's a big word we're going to dig in today because we don't walk around using the word wicked very much today. In fact, we might use it for things that it's not intended for. That was so wicked. All right. And that means good for some of you out there that don't know that these days. But the blessings of the righteous in misery of the wicked. It summarizes all that is to follow in the rest of the Psalms as well as the rest of Scripture. It emphasizes the importance of this prayerful meditation and following of God's word, the scriptures. Psalm 1 highlights two ways of life, the righteous way and the wicked way. It says that there are results for both ways of life on earth and after earth. One is of blessing, happiness, and fruitfulness. The other is of loss, sadness, and judgment. The choice is ours to make. And the main message of Psalm 1 is this. God's word is essential to a fruitful life. God's word is essential to a fruitful life. Notice I didn't say productive, successful, prosperous. And we're going to learn more about that today. God's word is essential to a fruitful life. There's a pattern in Psalm 1 that I want to point out to you. It's beliefs, behaviors, results. And this is all, this is everywhere in life. Our beliefs Inform our behaviors, which drive our results or create our results. And you can plug this into any scenario in life. I'll share with you a belief, a behavior, and a result that I had with two of my children, Zach and Morgan. Morgan's the oldest. Um, about 18 months later, along came Zach. So they grew up very, very close in proximity. And one Saturday morning, they're out in the backyard, running around doing their thing. Zach's about four. Morgan's about five and a half, going on six. And Zach had this big red wiffle ball bat. Do you remember those really thick, fat wiffle ball bats? How many you know what I'm talking about? And he had a little baseball, and he was throwing the ball in the air, hitting it across the yard, dropping the bat, running, picking the ball up, coming back, you know, spiking and going touchdown. I'm not sure what game was going on in his mind, but I was just overly impressed that my son could throw the ball up in the air, hit it, run it, catch it, bring it back, and I'm adding up the dollars in my mind of his contract that he's going to sign someday all right, that I could retire and live happily ever after. And as he's playing that game, and I'm drinking my tea in the morning, I'm not a coffee drinker, I'm just naturally wired, I know, um, and I'm watching this go on, I see Morgan on the peripheral just running around doing her thing, and at one point the ball rolls over to her, and she bends over and picks it up. And then she walks over to grab the bat, and I'm watching this and Zach comes running back and picks the bat up first and looks at her and tries to take the ball and she takes it back. And I'm watching through the window inside the house and all this plays out in front of me like I'm some psychiatrist up in an observatory window watching children in a playroom down below me. I wonder what will happen next. I had this belief that my, I had trained my child to interact in a way that was kind and respectful and honoring. And that's the behavior that would happen, and the result would be this wonderful moment played out in front of me where sister pitches the ball, brother hits it, they take turns it all, turns it They had a different belief, behavior, and result in that as they're arguing back and forth, and Zach's got the ball, and Morgan's got, I mean, Zach's got the bat, and Morgan's got the ball, and they're arguing, they're yelling. All of a sudden, Zach quit arguing because it was like epiphany, lightning striking the brain. He said, oh, I've got the bat. And he grabbed the bat with two hands, brought it right back here, and whacked his sister right in the middle of the forehead with that big fat end of the wiffle ball bat. Now, Zach didn't understand the law of, you know, dynamics and physics, that for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction, and that bat bounced right back and cracked him right between the <laughs> eyes. Fortunately, it's plastic, it's bouncy, but it was like, whack, whack. And now they're both upset. Now it's just chaos. And I'm standing there with my T going, oh my goodness. And they're running around the yard. Zach's trying to hit her. She's throwing the ball. At. She's doing whatever to survive. And I'm standing there and all I can think is, oh no, mom's going to wake up very soon. I better get out there and do something. So I had to run out, grabbed them both, calmed them down. You know, they're, they're, they're crying so hard they can't even breathe. How many of you have kids, you know, they're like... <laughs> And then wipe their nose and a big rainbow of snot hanging off of it and everything, you know. It was a lovely moment of parenting and fatherhood for me. But I had operated under this belief that they would behave and have a result. And really what happened was chaos. And I think we can all say that. And I will tell you now that the times in my life when I have had the belief I could do something on my own and behaved outside of Christ, the result has not been as fruitful as I've wanted it to be. And what I hope we learn from Psalm 1 is this. If you have the belief that God's word needs to be a key part of your life and you behave in a way that represents the word of God, the results will be far more fruitful than anything without him. And that is a capstone of Psalm 1. So let's look more closely at Psalm 1 here and see what we can look at. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does prospers. Psalm one through three, the first three verses break down by, oh, how blessed, oh, how happy. In other words, the word blessed here means, oh, how happy is the person who. And it starts with doesn't do these things, does do these things, and this is the result. So it starts by saying, not this. And in Hebrew, the word blessed means to go straight, to go forward or advance in what is right. It was an Old Testament word that was used with leaders to make sure leaders and rulers would make decisions that were aligned with what is right and truthful to advance the furthering of their kingdom. And that's what the Lord is trying to tell us here blessing is conditional upon things that we do not christ's love not his forgiveness but the blessing the fruitfulness of christ is conditional on how we live our life and that is what psalm 1 is laying out here it is a function all right this is not about complying it's not about a systems of works or some formula that you have to do to obtain the blessing of god Salvation is free through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Forgiveness and grace and mercy are ongoing. But the fruitfulness of God is dependent upon the choices we make, the lifestyles we live, the way we think, and how we act. And that is what Psalm 1 is saying when it says, Blessed or so happy is the person who. The principle is simple. Certain things corrupt, tear down, and destroy. Other things build, develop, and multiply or become fruitful. Blessing does not mean and promise a life of bliss free of trauma, tragedy, or hurt. It means you have an option to live your life a way that will be fruitful or not as fruitful. So what are these things that bring blessings? Well, first it starts with the negative. you don't do these things, and it's a progression, it looks at some habits interactions, and mindsets. And if you look at that verse closely, there's a progression there. It says, who does not walk, does not stand, does not sit. And then it describes things in there. Counsel, path, seat, wicked, sinner, scoffer. So what does all that mean? Let's break it down. Progression one, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The Hebrew word for walk here means to go along with to follow a course of action, or a way of life. It's not like an accidental thing, it's a choice that you decide to walk over here with a certain lifestyle of life to engage in it. The counsel that it's referring to here is this resolution or purpose or intent of the way you think and look at life. It's a worldview, or a biblical view. It's a view of the world and the way it operates and of God. That's the counsel. It's a way of thinking that informs your behavior. Wicked here is a unique word. We don't use the word wicked to call people wicked very often. Because as humans, when we think of wicked, we think of just evil, awful, dark, terrible things that people do. But in the Hebrew, wicked had a different meaning. Wicked really meant loose and unstable. It's the idea that somebody was loose in their moral and ethics, not to be trusted. They operated with no restraints around them. And in this passage, it means ungodly, loose in their beliefs towards God. It's when we're guided by our own desires, our own emotions and impulses, rather than those of God and the Holy Spirit and his word. So it's saying here, he does not, all right, or she does not, Follow a course of action or thinking that is set in their own ways outside of God's intentions. That's that first sentence. Does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. If that's the definition, then there's times I've been wicked. I've been loose and disenfranchised from God and not doing things His way. The next progression says... Nor stand in the path of sinners. Notice walking as you're moving. You're in and out. You come in and you come out. Next is standing. This is to stop. To firmly plant your feet somewhere. Stand like a guard. The path means a way or a course of action. It's now a direct path that's leading towards a clear destination. And you now have stood your feet and planted yourself firmly on that path and way of thinking. It's a conduct, behaviors, the way you make your decisions and live your life outside of Christ. And then it uses the word sinners. For we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody in this room is a sinner, but in the Hebrew, the sinner's word here means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. It's the idea that you miss the mark, the will of God. It's not saying that we don't all sin. It's saying that while we all sin and miss the mark, this is referring to those who deliberately choose a way outside of Christ. It's the idea that if the target is Christ, we're not even aiming at that anymore. We're now aiming over here. And now you're not just walking with them, learning and trying to engage in this. Now you're standing there and you're adopting those thoughts and you firmly become even more distanced. And the last progression is nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Sit in the Hebrew means to dwell, to abide and remain. The New Testament says abide in Christ and I abide in you. This is where you're abiding in something completely different. Either your own belief, a system of beliefs outside of Christ, a worldview outside of Christ. And you've now abiding and remaining in that. The seat here is literally in the Hebrew means Gathering together consistently for wisdom outside of God. It's a seat. And the Hebrew idiom goes, when you sit in someone's seat, you become and act like them. And then scoffer, another word we don't use very often. But scoffer simply means to mock, ridicule, or deride, tear down the truth of God. This is another habitual act or will of God. Now you may think this is a lot of heavy talking right here because I've never done any of that, so I'm pretty good. But if you take the context of how sometimes we walk, stand, and sit, where in our life, I know I have been in points in my life where I've gotten so frustrated that I began entertaining other beliefs and thoughts about God. And that began to inform, you know, impact my relationship. I got entrenched in those and got angry or bitter. And then I got further away from God and just didn't have anything to do with him. This is a progression each and every one of us left to ourselves will fall upon. It's why we're in need of a Savior. Because we will all end up walking, standing, or sitting somewhere outside the will of God. But blessed is the man that doesn't do that. So what's the counter then? If that's what we're supposed to not do, what is it that we're supposed to do? So my main point on this is like this. All right? We cannot be passive with God and his word. We cannot be passive with God or his word. The minute we become passive, we slide. We go down this progression. And God is not a passive God. God is a mover, a creator, a warrior, a healer, a savior. So we cannot be passive. Passivity towards God and his word leads to apathy, which leads to absence from God. And I don't think there's anybody in this room, including me, that hasn't felt right, some passivity towards God that's resulted in some apathy that means absence from God. I've gone days, weeks before without delving into his word like I should, without spending time with him like I should. It's kind of like when I was younger, I was a PE teacher. And I didn't have to worry about what I ate so much. I was young, I was active, I had PE classes all day, I coached. I just thought I was this, you know, thin, muscular, good-looking guy. All right? A little bit arrogant and prideful, but I didn't have to worry about what I ate. I could put anything in my pie hole when I wanted to, and a lot of times it was pie. I liked pie. And then I just knew the next dad, run around and exercise, go coach football, do some exercise at the school gym, and it would all be good again. And I lived that way. I developed this belief that I didn't have to think about nutrition and my behavior was to be active and the result was I kept the weight off. Well, as I crept closer to my age now that has a five and a zero in it somewhere, I began to notice that that pattern doesn't work very often. As I was passive about my nutritional habits because I love anything made out of meat, all right, I didn't see the value of plants, but now as I've gravitated more to understanding pan- plants are powerful, they're good for you, They do a lot of good things. I mean, I used to love nothing like a good workout than a cold Pepsi and a bag of chips. I mean, that's just the way to do it, right? One thing Jake and I have in common is cold Pepsi. We both love cold Pepsi. I don't know about the bag of chips, all right? But what I've learned now is that if I remain passive in that, I'm gaining a few extra things around my waistline I don't want to gain. And if I get apathetic about my nutrition, it, doesn't, it affects my health much more differently now than it did then. I don't try to walk down the grocery store aisle where they have the Pepsi and the chips and the Zingers. If you don't know what a Zinger is, I'm sorry. It's the most wonderful, awful thing ever created. And if I go down those aisles, I'm going to have a moment of weakness and you might just see me sitting on the floor drinking a Pepsi and eating a Zinger with a bag of chips under my arm, which is a really pathetic sight for a 50-year-old man in the grocery store. But the point is this, if I get passive about my nutrition and apathetic about it, all right, then there's an absence of health that I get the benefit from. And if we become passive with Christ, we get apathetic to him in our life, we have the absence of the benefits and health of him in our life. And that's what Psalm 1 set up in here. We cannot be passive with God or his word because we'll slide further away. So what is it we do? If we wanna be this blessed person, what is it we do? Well, verse two says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law, he meditates day and night. We delight beyond the obvious reason of what, uh, definition of what we all know about delight. In the Hebrew, it means this. It's connected to an Arabic word, which means to be mindful of or attentive to. It had this idea of protection and keeping something that was important to us. It's telling us that we should remain attentive and mindful to the word of God and to protect our minds and hearts and keep us in relationship with him. That's delight. Delight in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord here literally for the Jews was the Torah. The original books of the Old Testament that they had with them, the law of the Lord that they studied. For us, it encompasses all of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the inspired words of God through the prophets and the apostles that we can read and study. It is good for our soul, all right? It sharpens us. It points us to the story of Christ. That is what we are to delight in, the law of the Lord, protect it and keep it. It then says meditate on it day and night. I think we all know the gist of meditation, finding your calm, finding your happy place, right? Um, whatever that is. But here it means to speak, to think and plan, it's like a musing, a muse in your life that makes you wonder and reflect on who you are as a person. It is the idea of studying and applying God's word in your life, not just to know it, but to live it. How does the word of God inform the decision I need to make now? How does the word of God tell me how I should interact and relate with people in my life? How does the word of God help me be a healthier, more fruitful child of God? That is meditating and it says day and night. That just speaks to consistency, regularity. How much are you in the word? How much does it play a life in your word? I'm not saying you've got to set up, if you don't read the Bible 20 minutes a day, you're not meditating day and night. That's not what this is saying. This is saying, have you delighted and digested the word of God enough in your life that when you're making decisions and you're thinking through things in the day, does it play a part in that process? Is it a part of who you are? Is it a part of you remaining healthy and whole so you can be fruitful in Christ? So we just looked at what we shouldn't do, walk, stand, or sit in the way of those that are outside of Christ so that we don't become like that. We just looked at what we should do, delight, protect, and keep the word of God in our life and meditate on it, study it and learn it. What's the result? Because this is about behaviors, this is about beliefs, behaviors, and results. Well, verse 3 tells us the result. He or she will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. Okay, folks, I'm a word geek and this is beautiful. This verse three breaks down so amazing. So let's look at this. First of all, he paints a picture of us as a tree, not a bush, not a tumbleweed, not a shrubbery, all right? We are not a shrubbery, and some of you that laugh may get where I'm going with that. I need you to get me a shrubbery. Nobody in the room gets where I'm going. I feel all alone up on the stage. The nights you say knee, nobody knows what I'm talking about. There we go. Thank you. It's just a flesh wound. All right? And now we're completely off topic, but back to being a tree. We're not a shrub. We're not a bush. We're not a tumbleweed. We are a tree. It's something that is stable, strong, and steady, rooted deeply, This is someone who is spiritually, mentally, and emotionally mature in the Lord that has capacity to stand the storms of life. It's someone who has grown over time. It's not a sapling, but rather a full-grown tree with wisdom and understanding. It is someone who ministers and serves others. If it's a fruit tree, it gives nourishment through its fruit. If it's an oak tree, it can give shade to to the weary. If it's an elm tree or a pine tree, it can be used to build and provide shelter. The idea is that a tree gives. It's a life-giving source. But we can't be a life-giving source unto ourselves. For we need to be part of the tree of life, which is Jesus. Now get this next part. It's a tree Planted by streams of water. Here's where the Hebrew poetry and language is so beautiful. The word planted here actually means transplanted. It's the idea that farmers or crop sharers or gardeners, they would find a plant that wasn't surviving well out in the arid desert area of the region, and they would actually dig up that tree and transplant the tree over to fertile soil and ground where it could grow and become useful. What an awesome picture. That is who we are in Christ. Over here, we were in our own dying soil. There is nothing nutrient in me that can grow a tree. And left to myself, I would become purposeless and unfruitful. But Christ came and dug the ground out around me and transplanted me into Jesus Christ, the fertile soil, to become a tree in him. And it doesn't stop there. While he transplanted me into relationship with him, he then knew I would need water to grow. And when it says planted by streams of water, the streams here are not talking about a natural body of water. Not a creek, not a stream, not a river, not a lake. It's the idea that in this region of the country, the streams of water were irrigation canals. That the Egyptians, the Jews the other farmers in the area would dig from the river out into their land to provide water to their trees and plants and crops and vineyards. I grew up in Idaho Falls, southeast Idaho. Big Snake River. You drive in the farm side out there, the countryside, there's irrigation canals everywhere. They're just crisscrossing all over the place. And the idea is this. When God transplanted us into his fertile soil, He then dug an irrigation canal to where the river of life, his word, his full Holy Spirit, flows into us now so that we can become a fruitful tree in service to him. Is that not awesome? And that is the word of God it's the stream, it's the river of life flowing through us inside of us, the Holy Spirit, so that when bad things happen to us, when the enemy comes up behind us and squeezes us and tests us, the only thing that sprays out all over the place is the holy living water of God. Not me sometimes. Other things come spraying out and happen. But that's because I'm trying to live outside of God. And I haven't delighted in the word. I haven't meditated on the word. And I'm forgetting that I'm a transplanted tree in the soil of our God and Savior with the river of life right there for me to dip my roots into and soak into and become a fruitful tree. That is the happy, blessed man. That is the purposeful man. That is the wonderful woman. That is the man of God. That is the woman of God that is of benefit to Jesus Christ. God has provided these streams of water for us to grow the living word of God. We can read it. We can grow with it. We have it shared with us. We talk about it. We listen to it. We let it flow. But are we sharing it with others? He goes on then to say that the tree of life has some, fruit, has some results. One, it yields its fruit in season. If you stay transplanted in Christ and you get the river of life, you will produce fruit. And like I said, that fruit can be literal fruit, like you eat and nourish your body. It can be the fruit of shade for rest and weary people. It can be the fruit of being cut down and used to build shelter or build something. The ideal of it produces fruit or yields fruit in a season is that it's useful and purposeful in the intent for what it was put here. And too often we, we live our lives that our purposes for me. What's in it for me? I got to get the most out of the short life I have on earth. I got to accumulate what I need in life. And let me tell you something. It's not about you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility of mind, consider others more important than yourselves. We should be as Christ who thought of himself nothing, became a servant, took on the very form of man to serve others. That is a tree. It's in service the leaf will not wither. This is a picture of vitality and health despite the conditions going on around it. The tree planted by the streams of living water thrives year-round. Those left out in the elements under their own, they thrive when things are good. They struggle when things are bad. They're influenced by circumstances and whatever happens around them. Boy, is that a picture of our real lives. If we don't stay delighted and rooted in the word of God, We grow, we up and down, or we wither, we do whatever, depending on our circumstances. But a tree over here whose leaf does not wither, consistent, despite whatever's happening in their life, they're blooming, they're blossoming, they're producing. And the last thing it says, whatever he or she does prospers. Let me pause for a moment because I'm not a big proponent of this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that gets preached out there. I've traveled too far around this world to believe that that's truth. Because when the scripture talks about prosper, it's not talking about the physical world. Christ is interested in the spiritual world, the heart, the inside. And when he talks about prosper here, he's talking about a framework or a lifestyle that operates within Christ. It's people that seek to operate in the framework of God's will. It's people who use scripture as a guide for how we do and what we do. It's people who operate in the sphere of God's enabling, supply, and and position. It does not mean that there is never adversity or failure or fear. It does not mean that we won't, that we'll always have good health and wealth and success. Rather, prosperity means we gain the capacity to be wise and stable. The ability to stand up for truth, to provide encouragement and to help others. That's the prosperity that God's looking for. The key point here is this. Being in the world requires being in the word. Being in the world requires being in the word. Because as you read these first three verses, it'd be easy for you to walk away thinking, God doesn't want me associating with the wicked or evil or the wrong people in the world. That's not the truth. What he's saying is this. That if you're gonna be a light in the world and you're gonna be a salt in the world, you need to be grounded in the word of God. Because if you're not, you will be pulled away. You will slide away. And if you quit delighting in the word and you quit meditating in it, you can't be of any use in the world. Being in the world requires being in the word. Blessed is a man that delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. So once he has set all that up for us, once he has painted that picture, he now, the author now moves to the last three verses of the book. He, the author wraps things up with this contrast of wicked and righteous. Let's look at verses four through six. The wicked are not so, but they are like chafe which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's our key point for this passage. Wicked are without, while blessed are within. That's a mouthful. Wicked are without, outside God, without. Blessed are within. Think about that transplanted tree. One is without, one is within. And you're going to see that through the progression of these verses. It starts by saying, not so the wicked. Remember, the wicked we're talking about is those that are loose and unstable in their views of God. They've replaced all right, their beliefs of God with their own, with a worldly view. The wicked run the gamut from anybody that have no room for God in their life to a religious type who only gives lip service but puts nothing into action to those who deliberately and intentionally tear down the word of God. But in all cases, there's no real love for God or belief in his word or desire to fellowship with him. That's why he's saying not so them. The first thing he says is they're like chafe that blows away. This is meaning without his purpose. Growing up in eastern Idaho in um, wheat country and barley country and grain country, one thing you know about grain is when you harvest it, around the true kernel of grain is this false covering called chafe. And you have to break it down and you pound it on the ground in the threshing floor and now machines do it and all that chafe blows away. In fact, on harvesting days, you don't want to be anywhere near a wheat or barley field because it's just dust and stuff flying everywhere. All these tiny, tiny chafe particles that are the false covering of something that are of no purpose. They just drift away. They blow away. They're not needed. They're not necessary for the purpose of what the grain is doing. The grain is what God is after. This is not saying that people become unpurposeful or unnecessary in God's life. That's not what this is saying. What it's saying is the lifestyle, the way of life, the belief without God is purposeless. It's without purpose. And the last thing I'd want anybody in this room is to be without purpose. But this is not saying that you as a person are no longer purposeful or useful to God. We know in John 3:16 he says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be transplanted out of the desert and arid ground And replanted into him with the rivers of life, so that you no longer are chafed without purpose. But when you go through the threshing floor, you remain as grain, useful and purposeful and fruitful for God. I love how Hebrew poetry just paints these beautiful, figurative images for him. The next thing it says is, not stand in judgment. Folks, life has finality. And one of the finalities is that in the end, we will all stand before God. And when we stand before God, we'll take account for our actions. And some of us will be able to stand there as believers with the mediation of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Some of us will be without mediation. And in fact, what this is talking about in the Hebrew is not stand in judgment. It's the idea of this. You've been convicted and found guilty. You are going to court. And you have a choice to go to court with a lawyer who not only will represent you and argue on your behalf, but take any punishment that's handed down to you. But rather you go, no, I got it. I'll do it on my own. You will not make it through the judgment. You will not be able to stand up after the judgment because you'll have nothing left on your own. It's the idea that you are without his mediation, without him as a mediator. I do not want anybody in this room, anybody in my family, anybody in my life to try to face their own lawyering up with our God and Savior. Because folks, there is nothing in me, nothing in me that will get me off the hook and give me eternal life. When we have a transplanted life, rivers of life, a mediator, a gardener, a lawyer who will beseech God on our behalf. The next thing is it says we cannot assemble with God. They will not assemble with God. No assembly with God. This means without his fellowship and relationship. This is the heart. There's eternity because Christ wants to spend eternity with us. If we remove ourselves from that and try to create our own belief, our own wisdom, our own life out here on our own, we're going to miss out on the eternal fellowship and relationship with Jesus Christ. You will not be able to enter into the assembly, the gathering of eternity, getting to know your Savior, of worshiping and thanking Him and showing Him gratitude. If you become loose and unstable and you reject Christ and you walk away from Him and I got it or you don't choose Him or you don't select Him ever, that's what lies in wait for you. We don't say this a lot in church because it's uncomfortable. It feels condemning. But you have to understand that all of that is wrapped around the eternal, unmerited love of a Savior named Jesus who put his hands out on a cross and paid everything for you. Everything for you. He wants to transplant you. He wants the rivers of life for you. He wants to mediate on your behalf. He wants to spend eternity with you. And yet we walk, stand, sit outside, without, away from. Verse 6 sums it up even more. The author says For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The idea of the word knows here does not mean simply to have knowledge of something. It is often used in scripture in a protective sense and refers to God's providential care and love, which includes the eternal security of believers and his divine provisions for them. It means that God looks out for the righteous. In fact, if you read this in the New International Version, it translates this, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. When you've been transplanted into Christ, you now have a gardener that watches over you. He'll prune off branches that are not any good for you and are hurting you. He will give you whatever you need. He will water you when you need. He'll protect you when you need. He will help you grow. Out here on your own, it's all up to you. It's me and the world. The Lord knows the way. The way. He knows the course. He knows the path. The point is our path and our course is fully known by the Lord and he cares for us. God has foreknown and provided for us in the complete finished work of Jesus Christ. The scripture teaches us that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is anchored in Christ. But as this next verse tells us and warns, if your way of life is one of carnality, if it is one of rejection of Christ, it's nothing but futility. It's nothing that Solomon doesn't say in Ecclesiastes. It's a chasing after the wind. It's emptiness, pure emptiness. And it says, but the way of the wicked, those who reject, stand outside of Christ, will perish. Folks, we are all earth dwellers. We all have a temporary time on this earth. And our time on earth is going to come to an end. And we are to act as we are sojourners on this earth, aliens, and we only have a limited amount of time. And I would hope that we see from this passage in Psalm 1 that there's a bigger story at play than what we see right here. We see but a moment, and life is but a mist. And I'm not sitting here talking about just those that aren't in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm talking about those of us who are and have allowed our life just to become carnal and so mixed up in the world that there's really no difference. You can't tell anything distinguishing. There's no behavior in me that separates me. There's nothing I'm doing. I've been there. I've not acted like I should or lived like I should. And I needed to realize that I'm not living like a transplanted tree by the streams of life. The way of the wicked perishes because it is left to itself. The way of the wicked perishes because. You've left God out of the equation. The way of the blessed survives because of Jesus, thrives because of the word of God, and produces because of the Holy Spirit's presence. The call is to remain in Christ and live in his word. As I said at the very beginning, God's word is essential to a fruitful life. So we're back to belief, behavior, and result, folks. Do we have a belief that God's word truly is essential? Is our behavior to de- delight and meditate on that word day and night so that the result would be a fruitful, pers- purposeful, holy life for God? It all comes down to our beliefs, behavior, and results. And my hope is that your delight would be in the law of the Lord, that you would meditate day and night, that you would be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, that you would yield fruit in season, that your leaf would not wither, and that whatever you do prospers because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and his holy word of God. Make it a part of your life. Let's pray.